Welcome to Hiraith, the home of modern Welsh politics. Well, this is not your normal Welsh politics podcast. Today we are going to take a look at Welsh government investing in energetic and vocal personalities for the clad in Lycra and no, we're not talking about active travel this time. Instead, we are going to look at one of the most unexpected crossover subjects we've ever covered, the crossover where professional wrestling meets Welsh politics and political theory more widely. So let's get ready to rumble with Dr. Dai Moon, who is the Senior Lecturer of Politics at the University of Bath and longtime wrestling connoisseur. Hi, Dai. Hi, yeah. Uh, thanks for joining us uh, today. So for the listeners who don't know you, could you give us an idea of, of who you are and what's your area of expertise at Bath? Like you said, I'm Senior Lecturer in Politics at the University of Bath. My background, my PhD, was intra-party ideological antagonisms in multi-level political parties, colon, the post-evolution Labour Party in Wales. Hell of a title. I know people will be rushing out. But um, what that points to is my background in general was uh, Welsh Labour politics, politics of devolution, and in particular, ideological conflict within the Welsh Labour Party. And that then spun itself off into Welsh politics more generally, and indeed some work on Scottish Labour politics as well. But uh, about two years ago, a bit of a sort of crowbar movement i've started doing a little bit of work around the idea of professional wrestling and politics this all came around 2016 of course donald trump uh, starts making the news with his run for the presidency you start seeing it you start seeing sort of in the um the press the idea that trump's got a long history for wwe world wrestling entertainment although i would imagine that many of the listeners we have are probably old enough that they stopped listening when it was called the world wrestling federation the wwf it is now the wwe uh, because they lost a legal case against the uh, worldwide federation world wildlife federation but um started kind of getting interested in the notion of how does donald trump his history in professional wrestling tie into his type of politics and i i've now spun that out into three sort of articles looking on that as well I, i'm still working on welsh politics but now it's wales and professional wrestling and politics and it just so happens that we have an incredible linking together of those things so this is i'm delighted to have the opportunity to kind of bring together these things which i never thought i'd be able to bring together thanks Di. i mean there's some people who will question whether the biggest fight is uh, in the wrestling ring or within the welsh labor party sometimes but uh, thanks for letting us know how you got into it um so i think you you alluded to it there we've got the uh, WWE's Clash of the Castle taking place, uh, well, as we're recording, it's happening in, in Cardiff in a couple of days' time. Would you be able to just explain what is happening, why, as, why, you know, why it's actually not in a castle, uh, and the way in which the Welsh Government are involved in the event? Yeah, uh, what is happening, I, I, won't, I won't break down all of the sort of the main events, but for those who are interested, it's Roman Reigns, who is the universal, undisputed universal and heavyweight champion, is taking on Drew McIntyre, uh, the Scottish warrior uh, in the main event for those uh, belts there. It's not in the castle, but of course, you know, you've got to find a sort of Welsh kind of element to this. There's a lot of imagery of Cardiff Castle on the posters alongside red dragons and so forth. The red dragons and so forth is kind of what is quite interesting about this because the WWE aren't just holding an event in Wales sort of off their own back. Uh, this is the first major event in sort of 30 years. It's, it's a big deal that they're coming back here uh, rather than going to Wembley Stadium, et cetera. So why are they coming to Cardiff? Well, the first sort of sign of this is as soon as the announcement came out, you could spot on all of the images that Wales, Cymru, Dilla Red Dragon, the specific Welsh tourism dragon that people probably know. You'll, you'll see it at the bottom of all the posters. And it comes out that... Uh, 
the WWE was incentivized to come here by the Welsh government as part of the national event strategy. So they essentially sort of paid money to the WWE to win them coming here. And according to Tony Khan, who is the uh, in charge of finances over the WWE on their investors call, very good deal, a deal so good that they're looking to replicate this style elsewhere now. So in other words, the WWE known to bring in people, known to bring in uh, bodies to, in, into uh, sort of cities to spend money and so forth. They'll now take the Welsh example further and be looking to have people pay to bring them in. And you can see sort of what the Welsh government have got out of this as well. It's obviously, it, it's, it's bums on seats. It's people coming into Cardiff from around the country, maybe from across the continent as well. But it's, it's more than that. If you follow the social media, you follow um, the programming, just watch the stuff on YouTube. There are a couple of things. First of all, every time it's referred to, they always talk about the clash of the castle in Cardiff, Wales, Cardiff, Wales. Now, for fellow Welsh people, you'll know this is sort of a trope in TV shows, right? Cardiff, Wales. You always have to have it on at the end there. But it is notable, right? It's not just we're in Cardiff. It's always Cardiff, Wales. And that seems quite deliberate. You've also had videos being produced of uh, professional wrestlers like Dolph Ziggler. There's one that just came out today uh, of him going to Conry Castle to kind of learn about that, uh, trying Welsh cakes and lava bread in Cardiff, uh, going on zip lining and trampolines and so forth. Very tourist-focused videos of, you know, Dolph then at the end going, wow, isn't Wales a great, vibrant country to come to? It's lovely to be in Wales. Uh, Drew McIntyre did a video in Cardiff Castle where he was uh, learning to speak Welsh. There's been a pairing up with Duo, Duolingual, uh, who did a, a special sort of press release, which had Welsh translations of pro wrestling terms so that you could sort of like understand what was being said, and, you know, a Welsh translation of wrestling. There won't be a Welsh commentary on it, I'm assuming, but still, they, the WWE have opened a big shop in the centre of Cardiff, you know, and they're promoting this everywhere. So there's all these elements whereby it's not just that the WWE are coming here, they're branding it very very much as Wales as a nation is getting its its branding in there as a tourist destination the dragons are everywhere the name is everywhere we've got lava bread and Welsh cakes and so forth being eaten on on sort of uh, video packages so it's a big tourism event in that regard as well for those of us who used to watch the it, wrestling when it was the WWF I always remember um, the wrestlers would constantly get smashed through the Spanish announcers table I was wondering if there's a Welsh announcers table in the Millennium Stadium next week, whether they would suffer a similar fate. Um, you, you, you mentioned there that the Welsh government are paying the WWE to, to bring this event to Wales. Do we have any idea how much they've paid for the WWE? Yeah, I, I don't know. I have no idea. All I know is that WWE are very happy with how much it was. <laughs> uh, it's, I mean, it'd be hard to do a cost-benefit uh, cost analysis on this, obviously. The, the first thing is going to be people coming, uh, you know, to actually spend money in Cardiff. The other one is simply sort of the promotion I think it's fair to say that, you know, outside of the United Kingdom, sometimes within the United Kingdom, Wales is sort of missed out. Um, I've always kind of said it's sort of, it's a weird one that with the devolution settlement, oddly Wales is like the remainder in the, in the equation, despite the fact that England doesn't have devolution, it always gets missed out. The Scots, you know, there's independence, there's all that. Northern Ireland has its history. England is the hegemon. Wales has been typically the sort of well-behaved member that kind of gets ignored. And it's not, you know, it's sort of, it's the oh yeah and the other one. And outside of the UK, there is also that sort of recognition of sort of Welsh nationhood, I suppose, which probably is is something you can't put money on, maybe. Yeah, that's a good point, Di. I mean, it's interesting you mentioned there that they keep putting Cardiff Wales on all the posters just in case people start turning up in California to the other Cardiff uh, for a clash of the castle. Um, 
before we proceed, would it be um, probably worthwhile you just trying to explain a little bit about what the national events strategy is and, and how well you think that this WWE event might fit within its objectives? National event strategy, uh, sort of very basically, is attempting to bring in large. It, it's it's large events, it's major events. So it's it's sort of major sporting events or um, music or similar sort of cultural events specifically. So it's it's not about sort of a general sort of small scale cultural, it's those big get your name on the map events. And for that, the WWE fits perfectly within it. Uh, so the only thing you might have around, the only question that might come around it is uh, the WWE pro wrestling in general tends to come with a, uh, shall we say, a negative sort of connotations maybe okay like generally people have dropped the notion of sort of high and low culture you know oh everyone's sort of it's just culture now and you can see there's some former low culture horror movies now win oscars uh sci-fi is like everything hip-hop is now sort of sort of the general base of all music these things which were once seen sort of low culture have now just become the main but i feel like professional wrestling has escaped gentrification it's uh, it's still something which uh, it's slightly embarrassing to talk about. It's it's a thing people did in, in you know in the past, so to speak. And I think that maybe sort of like that's quite interesting that the money's been put into this you know so-called uh, fake sport, right? You know this kind of uh, slightly vulgar presentation. And it's an interesting idea to put the money into that, uh, especially for sort of a proud sporting nation. But it also points to just recognition of how incredibly popular uh, WWE is in general. I mean, on that point die i mean you could make a good argument that welsh sporting profile the sporting profile of wales has never really been higher with wales qualifying for the world cup you've got everything that's happening with with Wrexham football club all the successes in what darts for example all those kind of mm-hmm. things so it is an interesting time really to to have wales there but how well do you do you think this is reflecting on as part of that welsh sporting offer internationally do you think it's it's a compliment to that I think that more could have been done on that regard. So the headline event, headline uh, event you got is we've got a we've got a Scottish wrestler in the main event there. We've got Irish wrestlers on there, but we we've got some sort of there'll be English wrestlers who will be sort of on the card if not sort of in the ring, but no Welsh wrestlers, and that's a shame insofar as the WWE has um, until recently had four Welsh wrestlers who could have been on the card uh, in two, 2018. They created their own sort of British brand. It was called uh, WWE NXT UK, although it should be noted that it was basically uh, Ireland was included as a whole in there, which again points to maybe some leftover American sort of misunderstandings or chauvinism. But NXT UK uh, had several Welsh wrestlers. There was uh, the Welsh Dragon, Eddie Dennis, Flash Morgan Webster, Mark Andrews, Wild Boar. But what's just happened recently is with the tumult that's been at the top of the company, uh, which you might want to talk about later, but there's a series of scandals with the uh, former now CEO, Vince McMahon, um, a new leadership in place. NXT UK has been shut down. And it turns out, uh, like last week, the Welsh wrestlers appear to have all been let go. So unless they're going to be turning up on a sort of um, hourly paid contract or something like this, it turns out it looks like they've just fired all their Welsh wrestlers just before returning to Wales, which is a bit of a shame to put it uh, mildly. Uh, well, I went to high school with Mark Andrews. He was no. a below me. Yeah. It's a small world. Yeah, it, it, we, we, I was going to ask you about that. It's, it, it is a very interesting uh, development. What do you think it says really about the sort of integrity of Wales hosting this event? You know, is it similar to the way that Wales is, you know, there's lots of filming that goes on in Wales, but it always doubles up as somewhere else. It's not, it, it's never presented as Wales and Welsh. 
yeah, I can feel that. It's um, kind of you, you've hit the nail on the head with that. It'll be very interesting on the on the night, on the day to see what they do with the branding. The only similar deal that uh, WWE done in this sort of uh, thing so far is actually with uh, Riyadh in Saudi Arabia, which, as you can imagine, was a much larger deal. We're talking several multi, like multiple shows each year, um, a lot more money coming in from that, and highly critical as well, sort of reception to that from some people, because of course it's largely a sort of white washing. It seems like a sort of a white washing attempt of making Saudi Arabia look positive now. And watching their first shows, they had. Um, videos of sort of it's a new vibrant age in sort of uh, Saudi Arabia with pictures of skateboarding uh, women and stuff like this you know kind of like oh look how cool Saudi Arabia is there was a little bit of a question of whether they were going to go after sort of the murder of a journalist but they ended up going it turned out that was all right so Wales obviously less controversial is the place to come to but it will be interesting to see whether there's a similar kind of video packages mixed into the event in which we might see you know the the, the announcers talk to camera and say, oh, it's great to be here. And then they'll show some videos of Wales. And if they do, it'll be interesting whether or not they lean into those sorts of hoary cliches of Wales, whether we're going to see lots of videos of green valleys and sort of um, maybe some some Six Nations uh, footage, somehow they can get the, the rights to shoved in there. What exactly are they going to do there? And the extent to which it feels like those are WWE produced or whether or not there's been a hand in there advice from above about what you want to promote. But yeah, it, it, it's a bit of a shame that the Clash of the Castles doesn't appear to have any any Welsh uh, representation on it as yet. Again, other question we might want to look out for is whether or not there's going to be any celebrities brought in into the crowd. It's a classic thing with WWE. They'll bring someone in, have them at ringside, have them do a wave. And I could I could certainly see them trying to get someone in for that as well. <laughs> Mark Vapid, I don't think that will happen. Well, no, I was just going to say, Jai... I was on TikTok this morning and I saw a, a WWE promoted, promoted video, which had, and again, I'm really sorry, I don't know the name of the wrestler, but uh, doing, you know, brewing beer and making Welsh cakes and uh, herding sheep, you know, those kind of things. But I, I want to touch on to that sort of sports washing thing. You know, there's this, it must be quite uncomfortable company for the Welsh government, Saudi, you know, with everything that they must all feel about what's going on in Saudi Arabia, but also they've drawn some criticism really for not speaking up enough about human rights abuses in Qatar before Wales goes to the World Cup there. So how do you think they react to that? And do you think they say anything at all? Or do you think that they are more interested in just making sure these events go without a hitch? Well, just stick with the WWE one, for example, I think that pretty much is just hope they go without a hitch. Um, I've not seen any big name, sort of large profile like you say, I've not seen Mark Drake for doing a sort of video on Twitter going, come on, the lads, sort of about the WWE. And I think they wouldn't be doing that sort of thing. Although, come on, can you imagine it? That would be... Now I've got a mental image in my head, which um, hope springs eternal. We'll wait to see what happens on Saturday. But I think it's more just keep your head down stuff on this. I mean, professional wrestling has a history of sort of scandal within it. People die young in professional wrestling. Um, it's incredibly intensive athletic performance on your body and people end up on the road constantly wwe uh, performers have been uh, employed not as in they're not employees but they're independent contractors which is a clever way in the us that you can basically say they don't directly work for me um they're an independent contractor i brought in which means they i don't have to give them any health cover anything such as this it's it's sort of it's, it's a workaround on workers rights essentially so we have a lot of people working injured a lot of people taking pain medication a lot of people dying younger terrible contract um, you've also, of course, got the fact that the WWE's former CEO and 
uh, Vince McMahon and his wife, Linda McMahon, the largest campaign contributors towards the Donald Trump campaign. Uh, Linda McMahon then put into the administration as a small business advisor. Vince McMahon put onto the COVID task force, etc. There's all these sorts of unsavory things which you wouldn't want to link into it. But I think for the majority of people, nobody really knows about that. Nobody really cares about that sort of stuff. They just want to go and see, go and see the graps, go and see some sort of uh, the pure pleasure of a bit of professional wrestling. Lots of there, guys. Let's move on to, to Trump. So he, he did appear multiple times at WWE shows. And would you be able to explain a little bit about his connections with the organization? Yeah, they go back, um, they go back into the 1980s. Uh, Donald Trump hosted two WrestleManias, the largest event in the um, pro wrestling calendar in his casinos of the Taj Mahal, I think it was, in uh, New Jersey. And the, so he hosts these two events. So he's up front and center. You have Hulk Hogan doing promos at the time where he's calling out to, you know, to, to, to Donald Trump, naming him. Trump then appeared several times in storylines. Uh, in one of them, he bought the major TV show, WWF uh, Raw. He just was in the front row. He was interviewed and so forth. He also then, the most famous of these was something called the Battle of the Billionaires, in which he got into a feud with uh, the then... CEO and on-screen character Vince McMahon, where they challenged each other to a match where they both have a wrestler and whoever lost, one of them will get their head shaved. And it ended up Trump's guy won, Vince gets his head shaved. So you've got these sorts of storyline uh, elements. You've also got the business elements. You've got them hosting or running shows, etc. And then you've got the, sort of the character on there as well. Um, there's been multiple elements across it. He's in the WWE Hall of Fame. Uh, he's not the only professional wrestler turned politician. Arnold Schwarzenegger, governor of California, is in the WWE Hall of Fame. Jesse the Body Ventura, former governor of Minnesota, obviously as well. But he's the first presidential uh, president to be in the WWE Hall of Fame. So it's an odd one. People might not know that one directly. But when you start to think about Trump, you've got WWE, you've got uh, beauty pageants, you've got Pizza Hut commercials and sort of the tabloids and The Apprentice reality TV, all those sorts of kind of what we might see in some sense of sort of trash TV. And again, I'm not, this is not me meant to be denigrating that I'm sort of talking about the manner in which it's viewed within our sort of culture, all nicely linking itself together as an image for him. You, you have written uh, academically about the 2016 Trump campaign uh, through the lens of wrestling. Do you want to tell us a little bit about that? Sure. Yeah, absolutely. For anyone who's wanting sort of just to read an article, which hopefully is a bit of, is fun to read as well as uh, obviously highly sophisticated and erudite. I had two papers I did on this one. The first one was um, a comparison between the campaign styles of Jesse the Body Ventura when he's running for governor of Minnesota in um, the late 90s and um, then Donald Trump 2016. And part of what I was trying to do is see the similarities between those campaigns, but also to look at was there anything within the professional wrestling background that they both had which allowed them to run the sorts of campaigns that they ran, which everyone said defied convention and were successful. And those two have quite have, have an interesting backstory. They were both members of the Reform Party. When you have Ventura running for governor, Donald Trump comes down and does a couple of uh, uh, events with him there. You know, he's on stage saying, vote Jesse. They're both in the party. At the same time, Donald Trump has his first notion, I'm going to run for president. He pretends he never did it, but that was the first time he did it. So you've got that link in there. And there's a possibility they're sort of seeing how the first worked compared to the second. But ultimately, what I argue in that one is we've had this idea of celebrity politicians for a long time. That's the sort of a tried and true notion. But there's sort of two elements, two types of that. The celebrity politician in one hand, you've got the people who are a celebrity and then they, they stop all that. They put the suit on, you know, they, put, they get their tie all done up and they're a serious individual now. They drop all the, the um, 
they drop all the celebrity elements, they're a serious person. But then you've got people like Ventura and Trump, I argue, drawing upon a, a sort of concept in the literature of politainers, which is they develop a, a, a character within the, the realm of celebrity, the realm of sort of the media. And when they become a politician, they don't drop it. The character continues through. They're still playing the same character as a politician. And for the guys who came out of professional wrestling and they have that sort of background, it allows them to say things and get away with things that others simply can't. It means that they can make scatological bodily references. They can talk about slapping and hitting people and so forth in a manner that you simply couldn't do if you're a professional politician in some ways. It gives them a freedom to do this. People are willing to accept it. And because what I argue is part of this is by being linked to these sort of outsider denigrated forms of entertainment, it gives them that outsider perspective. You know, they're not part of the club. They're not a professional politician, um, which means that they're somehow more real and they can say these things and get away with it. You can see the difficulties you have if you are a professional politician. If you watch, um, you can go on YouTube and Google um, Obama, Hillary and John McCain on WWE Raw, where they went on there to do some sort of videos and the most cringeworthy, awful things you've ever seen. Because of course, they simply can't talk that language. It feels fake. Well, everyone talks about Donald Trump as somehow being real for all the madness that that is and part of it is he could get away with it because of that background in some sense he could he could play the character so that was that was the first one that i looked into that and then the second one the second one came out of so i i, I watched i watched professional wrestling as a teenager I, I grew up in a socialist household we didn't have sky right we weren't having that rupert murdoch stuff in our house so i didn't watch any of it until it came onto sort of uh, channel four uh, around about 2000 they, they all the pay-per-view started to come on then I started watching then and kind of got hooked, eventually dropped off when I went to university. And it wasn't until 2016, really, that I, I, I re-engaged with it around the Trump period. However, despite that being the case, it's always something which has sort of fascinated me. And it was my, when you're at obviously an academic conference or something, it's late night, you've had a couple of drinks, you start boring people in the bar about. And the thing which had always fascinated me was everybody knows professional wrestling is predetermined, right? That it's, it's fake to use the term, right? But... Nevertheless, it's that moment of watching where there's a wrestler who's down, he's been covered for a pin, and the rest slapping the canvas, you know, one, two, and you see that person in the front row, and they're just screaming, kick out, kick out. And that's kind of fascinating, because they know that their emotional engagement, their shouting can't make any difference. They know it, because they know that the match is going to end how the match ends, but still they're investing into it. And as someone who's interested in the study of ideology, albeit ideology within the Welsh Labour Party, for the majority of what I've been writing about, that's interesting. Because this is, you know, to use Slavoj Žižek, this is ideology at its purest, right? Even though I know I'm, I'm engaged, I'm bought into the hype. And there was something in there about how politics sort of functions to me. And Trump gave me the in. People who'd previously obviously been sort of like, yeah, mate, that's really interesting. Suddenly were like, wow, that's quite interesting. Yeah, you should write about Donald Trump on that. And of course got to assume that um, people want to publish articles about Donald Trump because they'll get the clicks, just like CNN does or whatever. So Donald Trump was the article I wrote about that, largely asking, in that one, I wasn't saying, does his background in wrestling explain how he could be successful, like the first one? This one was, forget that. Can we use concepts from pro wrestling to study Donald Trump? And I drew upon a couple of concepts, the key ones being kayfabe uh, and then smart fans, probably the two key ones in there. Now, kayfabe is, if you'll all uh, bear with me for a second, kayfabe is um, essentially the fake narrative. It's, it's the story, the story world that you're within. So kayfabe is the gimmicks, 
people have, the characters they play. It's when you go to watch professional wrestling, it's, it's a storyline. It's a storyline everyone's involved in, in the match and in the backstage and so forth. And then smart fans, they are, they are differentiated from other fans who are known as marks. Now, in the old world of professional wrestling, kayfabe was sort of the noble lie in which people pretended it was real. Everyone pretended it was real and um, you never broke kayfabe. So if you were uh, playing, you know, the Sheik, you would have to travel around playing the Sheik and so forth. Okay, you, you wouldn't have the good guys, uh, the faces traveling with the bad guys, the heels. None of that happened. But eventually around about the 1980s and so forth, there's sort of an accommodation is made where people accept, well, look, it's a work. A work meaning it's, <laughs> it's, it's not uh, on the level, so to speak. And what shifts there is kayfabe becomes less about pretending it's real. And instead, it enters into sort of this kayfabe is something which is, is created and generated not only by the company in the ring, but by the fans. So it becomes performance conventions. When you go along to watch professional wrestling, you cheer the good guys, you boo the bad guys, or maybe you do it the other way around, right? But you play a character and a role. You buy into it. You suspend your disbelief in what you're seeing to have the pleasure of playing along. If the audience don't do that, the whole thing fails. It doesn't work. It only works because when you go along, you act like someone who believes this is real, which is then what allows it to kind of have the performance to work through. So marks were the people in the past who thought it was real, and then smart fans were the ones who knew it wasn't real. Now, realistically, there aren't really many marks left, maybe sort of small kids who are watching it, but most people now are smart. They understand. And what I was arguing in that paper was that if you start to think about politics. I was talking about Trump. Let's talk about politics more generally in terms of the relationship a lot of people have to politics. It's a relationship people fans have to pro wrestling. And we start to think about politics as kayfabe and people who follow politics as sort of smart, smart fans. It kind of gets to something which might explain why people engage with stuff they know is not necessarily sort of legit. So like you go along to the rally, the politician gives the speech. Now, we know that speech is written by a speechwriter. It's been run through probably a couple of uh, sort of uh, policy groups about what we want to be saying. Uh, we know that when they give a shout out to the local delicacy, when they, they say they kiss the baby and say it's beautiful, you know, we know all that. It's not necessarily the most beautiful baby. It's not really that they love our food. We know that it's all part of the, the game. We know that when they make an announcement that they're doing that for a reason, which is to say they've picked as a, a key element of the demographics they need to be reaching out to to win uh, support from and what we end up doing is cheering as though it's real. we accept that it's it's part of the game and we cheer along anyway while at the same time what you start to do like a smart fan is interrogate not what they're saying but why they're saying it so politics becomes something which you follow along and you're more interested in the backstage of it you're interested in oh, well, they're doing that because they're hoping to win over enough people over here. It's very clever, a bit of triangulation. Um, I've been listening to all the different podcasts and it tells me about who's in and who's out of the cabinet. It's very interesting. And rather than following politics as an issue of sort of life and death and resource allocation, you start to follow it much more, almost like a form of entertainment uh, in which you're so busy trying to figure out why people are doing things and what this tells us about the decisions which are being made and so forth all of which is necessary to then play along with that you start to divorce yourself from some of the more painful uh, outcomes of politics. But that was one of the reasons is why, why do people invest in Donald Trump, a man who's so obviously on the level sort of uh, <laughs> openly sort of a, a con artist. It's because you almost get that slightly cynical distancing from it 
where when Trump says, you know, uh, we're going to build the wall, people are kind of going, yeah, yeah, probably not going to be a real wall, but he's saying that because he's trying to win people over and it doesn't really matter. It's sort of, and that's sort of what I was interested in. And Trump gave me the into it, but, you know, it's very difficult to watch a lot of our politics now and not see it as slightly degraded by this form of engagement with politics, I would argue. Sorry, that was a long answer, but hopefully it was uh, people followed along. It was an absolutely great answer. I'm very happy with the answer, Di. The thing it made me think, though, which is slightly terrifying, is that I thought all the political staffers I'd ever met had been playing some sort of really bad version of the West Wing, and now I know that they've actually been playing some really bad version of WWE. The one question I was going to follow up with on, on this was, who in Britain, or in Wales more specifically, has ever used these kind of tactics? And do you, or, or do you think that this isn't something we do here in Britain? So... There are papers which are written about how Trump directly uses tactics he learned in uh, professional wrestling. So, you know, he's been in the ring. He knows to, how to win over audiences. Uh, and there's been work written about that stuff. He, his, he's had stuff such as um, the Republicans hosted their counter rally when the Democrats had their convention on in an old wrestling hall with a wrestling ring in the background. He came out at his conference uh, with like an opening that looked like the Undertaker's entrance which we talked about off air, obviously, behind the scenes there. It's all about the kayfabe. But um, I, I would never want to kind of go out and say Donald Trump, for example, is deliberately utilizing these elements here. And I don't know we can say that anyone in professional wrestling is directly using it here. Although, of course, it should be noted that we do now have the all-party parliamentary group at Westminster on professional wrestling, who have put out a fantastic report looking into the regulation of the industry and what needs to be done to support it and to support the people who work in it. And I would give a shout out to that because it's a really fantastic report. But that's almost the exact opposite of what we're saying here, which is, does anyone utilize that sort of professional wrestling style and skill set? And I, I don't know we can see anyone who does that. There are some politicians who are open about uh, their love of the, uh, the sport of kings in the squared circle. But I think the majority of people would rather keep their head down on that front. But what we can see is people who tap into what might be called the sort of the popular style of politics. And I know that's a massively overused term. But when you start to think about the sort of thing which professional wrestling allows you to do, it's, it's carnivalesque. It's about suspending the norms and the rules uh, in these moments in which you can become vulgar, you can become sort of talk about violence, you can talk about, you can use, you know, insult people. Remember all of Donald Trump's uh, sort of nicknames for people he had, you know, and his chants, lock her up, lock her up, crazy Bernie, little, Ma little Mark. Anyway, I can't remember them all off the top of my head. But you can see that in some of the politicians, probably in the same obviously from like uh, Nigel Farage and other sort of populist politics. I'd say uh, a figure such as Boris Johnson, you can see that performance element in there quite clearly. I think Boris Johnson would probably start talking about um, sort of Greco-Roman wrestling and sort of have some sort of long uh, spluttering conversation about sort of the classical form of wrestling if he wanted to. But his sort of style is much more pro-wrestling in terms of that sort of spectacular approach. Um, so Roland Barthes, uh, the French uh, philosopher theorist, he wrote an article on the world of wrestling. And he says, the thing about wrestling is spectacle. And a key thing in spectacle is everything is very enhanced, immediate, obvious. You know, when someone is down in the ring, they are spectacularly down. You know, they're grimacing, they're gurning. You can see uh, that they're in pain. Um, when they're a good guy, it's very clear. When they're a bad guy, they're sort of, you know, they're scowling, their body type, everything tells you about that. And Johnson is someone who you can see is spectacular in that regard right he's completely over the top and, and was a character in that regard although his background i'd say was rather than being professional wrestling that came out of the media forms of have i gotten used to you, uh tv shows writing sort of the sort of journalistic common pieces used to do it was that sort of gross 
British media satire style that we have instead, but it still had a similar outcome. And it allowed him to act in these manners that others couldn't do because he had that comedy background in the same way that someone like Trump had his sort of Miss Will competitions, The Apprentice and, and the WWE background. That's where I, I think you could see it. It's in people kind of ironically embracing these things to say, I know that, you know, he doesn't mean this, so I know that he's a bit of a charlatan. But on the other hand, you know, he says what he really means or he's, he's, uh, tells it like it is. It's sort of that weird sort of mixture of, of embracing what you know to be artificial to enjoy it as though it's real. There's wrestling th- theories going through my head now, Diane, and things like people love a bad guy sometimes. They love a heel. Absolutely. And do, you, and do you think that some politicians play up to that, knowing that actually that sometimes annoying ex-demographic will earn them more support than ever trying to win over people from that demographic? Oh, absolutely. It's, it's a key part of our politics. I mean, you can start to think of, um, you know, Jacob Rees-Mogg is very much a gimmick, right? He's not actually an Edwardian figure. He's, um, he, he plays up to that role. I think someone like Neil Hamilton was... Um, you, you might want to use sort of Twitter terminology in trolling people, et cetera. But what you're doing there is you're deliberately playing up into these sorts of characters, which is it's there to rally your base by directly, yeah, playing the bad guy, so to speak. Yeah, I, so I, I do think that's a key thing. But that's because sometimes being the bad guy can be a, a little bit sexy as well, right? It's sort of because it's cool. It's, it's about breaking with the norms and pushing against the rules rather than being the square uh, sort of good guy. And yeah, I do think that's something that you can see within elements of our politics the other thing you can see is sort of people in professional wrestling turn from face to heel and heel to face all the time and honestly sometimes you look at the way people talk about some of our politicians who just switch from suddenly being terrible to fantastic the way we're currently talking about michael gove is quite an interesting one at the moment where he's all of a sudden become sort of like this icon of fantastic politics um compared to what he was before just because i know rich will shout at me if we don't but the heel face thing so it Heel is the bad guy, essentially, right? And the face is the, the good guy. Apologies, yeah. Face comes from sort of baby face, and that was the good guy. And a heel, you kind of hear it now, heelish behavior. It's, it means you're a bad guy. Professional wrestling sort of terminology, et cetera, comes out of the carnival, okay? So it's sort of, it's traveling carnival. So kayfabe is a form, the term is a form of pig Latin, which essentially means fake. So you've got heels and faces. That's why you call professional wrestling a work because you're working the audience, you're sort of because the audience are marks again, you know, not Mark Drakeford's, uh, just marks. <laughs> well, I think you know, whilst we're on that heel topic, you know, it's sometimes sometimes easier, simpler. It's a simpler message to be the bad guy, isn't there? There's many shades of grey within doing good things, and I think that there's a simplicity to that storytelling that allows for sometimes more powerful, more subtle messaging that. Me, maybe we can learn a bit about in political messaging, but also for those who are deciding deciding to turn heel, it works strongly to their benefit, right, in a political sense. Well, think about the fact that the former prime minister, you know, he's still the prime minister, the, uh, Boris Johnson, um, you know, he wrote two letters on Brexit, right? And he decided to go with, get Brexit done. You know, he decided to go for it. He could have, like, you know, that was a moment, which way are you going to go? Um, but get Brexit done is a perfect example the way our media frames the Ramonas as uh, sort of, you know, traitors, the enemies. And so that sort of stuff, it's, it's, it's powerful stuff. And it's easy stuff as well, because ultimately you never have to have any accountability for what happens afterwards because you're always going to be uh, blaming the others, which is not to say that it's a good guys, bad guys, you know, on Brexit, et cetera. I'm just saying sort of that sort of framing. When you're lecturing at Bath, you do also talk about the use of nationalism in wrestling. What, what can we learn from the use of sort of national identity and, and patriotism in the context of wrestling, though? 
yeah, again, it's people are going to be thinking like, oh my God, people are paying almost 10 grand and they're hearing about this. But now hear me out, hear me out. We've got one uh, unit at our university, which is uh, called uh, Cultural National Identity. And it's a unit where we introduce sort of theories of, of identity, culture, nationalism, as you'd imagine, uh, multiculturalism, all those sorts of things. And then we have individual case studies. And I, I gave two on there. One is about Britishness, uh, which I discuss its link to sport. And in particular, I talk about how sport ties into national identity. And then I talk about the 2012 Olympic opening ceremony, which is still a sort of moment of pure hysteria for parts of Twitter, right? It's the greatest moment in Britain. It all went downhill from there. So 2012, I talk about that. And the other one is I talk about American identity and Americana by talking about professional wrestling and specifically the WWE. And one of the areas where professional wrestling is interesting with nationalism is one it's broad stereotypes obviously incredibly broad stereotypes thinking back to sort of you know the 80s you've got the literally the bolsheviks people dressed up in sort of red tunics with the uh, hammer and sickle flying the flag teaming up with the iron sheik uh from iran until when the wrestler uh had to switch over to be suddenly an iraqi general for a period when that war was on and then switch back to be iranian afterwards right you've got the the mountie you've got you've got hulk hogan with his sort of red white and blue and again if anyone is listening to this and going dear god i remember this stuff just go on to youtube and google hulk hogan real american and just watch the, the video for it it's it's astounding it's what I, I opened my lecture by playing it and then literally go okay that's the end of the lecture has anyone got any any questions you know Hulk Hogan riding his motorbike while uh, cruise missiles fly behind him and sort of troops wade through the water with with guns held high it's incredible so you've got you've got the sort of the broad stereotypes in there obviously what you see from professional wrestling has been that the bad guy gets nationally linked to whoever is the bad guy for America at the time I talked about the fact that you had uh, the Bolsheviks and the Iranians, then you go into the, the Iraqi period where Sergeant Slaughter um, betrayed his country to go and join up uh, with Saddam Hussein. This is the first Gulf War we're talking about there. But then after 9-11, you had La Resistance and you had French wrestlers coming in, um, making fun of sort of Freedom Prize and stuff like this. You had the anti-Americans, which is Canadian uh, heel stable. So you've always had that sort of the other is the enemy. Whoever is the enemy of America can be very broadly characterized and then beaten up in the ring, of course. So after 9-11, you had the introduction of um, Mohammed Kassan, who is a Italian playing an Arab-American character, who actually his whole gimmick was that he was calling out the racism he suffered um, and saying it was unfair. He was just a good American citizen, but then somehow it was played so that you were meant to hate him and people get booing him and they were cheering when he got beaten up and it all went horribly wrong. Uh, for the WWE when they filmed a, an element in which The Undertaker was attacked and garroted with uh, wire on TV. And this aired the morning after the 7-7 bombings in London. And they had characters all dressed up in sort of balaclavas, etc., doing this. And then they carried out uh, one of the characters as though it was sort of a funeral for a martyr. And um, that didn't go down very well. And they ended up uh, finishing the character off after that. So but the reason that's kind of interesting is WWE, it runs every single week and it's been running, it's the longest running TV show uh, of all time at this point, sort of by which I mean every single week. It doesn't have breaks, it's not seasons, which means it has to keep up and change. And you've seen over time sort of the, the moving away from those sorts of broad stereotypes, trying to get away from that uh, and becoming much more sort of, and I don't use this as a derogatory phase, but, you know, politically correct, you know, trying to embrace modern uh, images in particular around uh, black athletes and women and so forth and move away from the bad old days of the attitude era so you've got that that first element but one of the reasons that's quite interesting as well is 
because how you watch professional wrestling is you're trying to figure out what happens next. Why is person X doing Y? Why, why are they acting in that manner? You have to put yourself into the mindset of thinking like the people who book it. So you're like, well, they like to do this, so they're probably going to do that, which means that you have to almost accept a whole bunch of the premises that underlie how this works to be able to follow it, which means that, you know, that's pretty good for ideological messaging getting through as well. There's research which shows that information which is given to people in the form of a joke is more easily accepted than in a statement because we, we lower our barriers for what we need because people like jokes, right? I like to laugh, but also the, the, the mental act of having to tell a joke, I've got a joke for you. So why did the dog lie in the sun? Because you want to be a hot dog. Now, oh, wait a minute. He's a dog in the sun. The sun makes you hot, hot dog. It's a type of food. Ah, it's hilarious, right? But the mental element to figure out the joke means that you're, you're busy doing that and then enjoying laughing rather than thinking about it. And I know that seems high end, but there's, there's some really good, really fascinating research on political satire. And there's something happening here as well that often if you put things forward in the form of entertainment, we're more willing to embrace them unthinkingly as well, even if we're not directly thinking about it. I'm probably a bit apropos of nothing at all, but... Often we get told that Americans, well, I mean, it's true, Americans only really play sporting competitions against other Americans. They don't tend to take on the rest of the world. Does that feeling that America is always the best in the world, that exceptionalism, help that narrative in other ways? Well, yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's sort of, when WrestleMania opens, you know, they, they, they open it by singing um, uh, The Land of the Free, right? And they, have, they had normally have military jets flying overhead and, and so forth. The WWE's had a long-standing link with the American military. Uh, they had um, special shows where they went out to Iraq and did shows for the troops and so forth, tribute to the troops. Um, they used to have links on their website where you could, it would help you to go and sign up for the National Guard, right? They won medals. So that mixture of sort of American militarism and American power has always been in there, even though it's called, you know, the heavyweight title, it is essentially sort of an American belt, which is why you then create the United Kingdom title, which is about to be merged with the other NXT title. So it's going away. And in fact, they're now launching them called NXT Europe. That's the new thing, NXT Europe. But at the same time, one thing which is quite different from when I used to watch it, um, when I was a teenager, like I've given you all the negatives to an extent of professional wrestling, but professional wrestling also has huge I would say, say, we'll call it progressive elements to it. And I've written about this in the third paper. The form of professional wrestling, it's a language that anyone can speak, right? You've got Mexican wrestlers with American wrestlers, with British wrestlers, with German wrestlers, with Japanese wrestlers, all on the card, um, which is coming up, okay? And despite the fact they're on different backgrounds and different sort of maybe styles, they can get in the ring and can just act it out together, sort of because it's, it's a muscle memory. It's, it's a form of uh, incredibly difficult uh, and um, skillful act, but it's also one which is fundamentally based upon cooperation and trust and care, but which I mean, when we think of professional wrestling, we think of people just like slamming each other and kicking them in the face, but to be able to pick someone up and slam them on the floor involves the person being picked up, doing the work to pull themselves up. And then it involves a person slamming them down to make sure they drop them on the mat so they don't hurt them. When the person runs and dives over the, the ropes and flies through the air to land on them, they are banking on the fact that the guy is going to be there to catch them safely when they go down below and then act as though they're hurt to make them look good. So there's, there's this weird world where professional wrestling is a very multicultural, multi-ethnic form of performance art, which is based upon care for the other, trust and and a kind of like really positive notion of showing forms of violence with anti-violence. You know, the aim should never be to hurt someone. In fact, you have to learn very hard to turn off your, how your brain normally thinks so you don't get hurt. 
if someone's about to hit you with a clothesline and you tense up, you're going to get hit. So you have to learn not to tense up. It's a really fascinating sort of physical activity that people do as well there. So I've given you the negatives there, but there's also, I think that's sort of positive. And again, I apologize if I rambled off on that. It's something I, I think is fascinating. Uh, no, not at all. Di. The only reason I asked uh, that question is because secret for everybody here, I'm a massive basketball nerd. I uh-huh. love basketball, watch lots of basketball, obviously there's one Canadian team, but it's mostly American teams. Just, but I watch a lot of sports TV from America. And I was watching one where, obviously, as you, the US are in Wales's group for the World Cup, mm-hmm. I'm slightly interested in that uh, mm-hmm. development and how they're covering it. And listening to, um, to some of the American commentators, they think that as long if they had a better goalkeeper, <laughs> they'd be able to win the World Cup. So it's just interesting into that how that interplay works in my head. Anyway, we'll move on. So well, that- it's, it's, yeah, I just, I just throw out there because WWE, you know, you talked about this. The, will there be a Welsh announcing desk and Spanish desk? They they have like now they've got a German desk, a, a Mandarin desk, a Japanese desk. They've got a Hindi desk. Like it's incredibly worldwide sort of now. Not the people who are the wrestlers, the people who are watching elsewhere. So that's interesting, not simply because when you then pro, you present the logic of the game, the logic of the performance as ultimately America. It's quite a fascinating thing to be uh, proposing. But then again, also fun fact, the last time we had any um, polling on fans, WWE fans uh, skewed liberal in American terms. The only fan base more liberal was basketball. So there you go. If, if we did have to have a, a WWE, WWE Welsh desk, who do you think would be on it, though? That's going to be Hugh Edwards, isn't it? I mean, it's so boring to say it. <laughs> but he'd be, he'd be fantastic. He'd probably get into it as well. You know he would. Uh, it's been an absolute pleasure to have you on today. The only thing I want to ask, and it's possibly too complicated a question, I should have gone for Hugh Edwards on to end. <laughs> but we've, we have seen a number of uh, wrestlers become politicians. You know, mm-hmm. uh, we talked before off air, we talked about how Kane was one of my yes. absolute favourite wrestlers as a child and ended up becoming a, a Republican mayor. How well do these ex-wrestlers tend to do once they are in office? It depends what you mean. Do you, I mean, if, if the question is how well do they do in the sense of actually governing uh, versus how well they do in terms of being successful. I mean, well, we, we've talk, I think we've talked a lot, of, an awful lot during this interview about how good they are at campaigning and why mm. these skills tend to lend themselves well to campaigning. But do they tend to when, when lend themselves well to governing as well? To, to an extent, it's going to be what you want to get out of it. I'm not going to sit here and say that Donald Trump was a good president, although, of course, although he wasn't a professional wrestler, although he did actually get in the ring and throw, throw fists at some point. But am I going to say Kane is a good politician? Not with, I completely disagree with his ideology, so it's difficult to say. The majority of professional wrestlers who have become politicians are all Republicans, it should be noted, which might tell you something, which is kind of interesting. You know, I said all that stuff about how professional wrestling is about care and sort of, you know, working together. But it's kind of interesting that most of them are Republicans. So you've got Jesse Ventura, you've got uh, Linda McMahon, of course, she, she ran and failed twice. Uh, Rick Steiner, who's on a school board. The only other person who comes to mind is Tony Harm, who was for the True Finns, a far-right party. So I couldn't tell you whether or not they're massively doing a good job, in part because it's not really been studied. Jesse Ventura has been, um, and there's some really interesting texts on that. But realistically when they get into power they've generally just been the ones who, who, who i'm talking about have just been sort of run-of-the-mill conservatives and that's quite interesting that they campaign as this sort of radical you know i'm going out there i'm breaking the mold i'm saying what's unsayable but they get into power and it's 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 your basic capitalist politics as, as normal i absolute pleasure thank you very much for coming on to talk to us if people want to hear more from you on twitter where can they find you uh it's at david 
underscore s underscore moon and you can just find me by googling uh, david moon bath and you'll find all the stuff you want there if anyone wants any of these articles and it's behind a paywall just drop me an email or dm me and i'm happy to send it over and yeah thanks for having me on I, it's like a maybe this is a silly season episode for people but i hope people have stuck around and enjoyed it because i've really enjoyed being on here I've really enjoyed talking to you, Dave. Thank you so much. And if you've enjoyed what you've heard this evening, please don't forget to find us on Twitter and Facebook at Pod, or go to our website, www.walespolitics.com. Thank you for listening to Hereith. If you like what you heard, please don't forget to subscribe, rate and review.